Proverbs 31, the woman of valor. Last time we looked at the beginning of Proverbs 31, especially as regards the king of valor. The, the king there, we looked at the fact that this chapter is from Bathsheba to Solomon. These are her words, and he captures them prophetically to be preserved for the church. Now, the admonitions that we looked at last time, I have an outline for you here on page 1. And what we see on page 2 is the outline of the chunk of text that is about the woman of valor, the queen of valor. Now remember, it's an acrostic poem. Verses 10 through 12 talk about her value, 13 to 37, about what she does. And 28 through 31 is the praise that's given to her. Now, today... At verse 10, which we talked about last time, I want to give you a sort of a main point. And this main point is a point to the men. The reason that Solomon's mother gave this was to help Solomon to pick a good queen. Now, Solomon seems to have had essentially three eras in terms of how he dealt with queens. The first one is the woman that he married and faithfully dealt with as a wife who was talked about in the Song of Solomon, the Shulamite. After that, she seems to have died, and he has taken a wife from Pharaoh's daughters. And in taking Pharaoh's daughter, he broke the commandment of God to not take foreign wives, unbelieving wives. But she seems to have taken on some sort of a outward promise of the covenant. So there's sort of a, a conversion act that occurs, at least outwardly. And we enter later on in the days of Solomon into a period of time during that marriage where he seems to then go into his polygamous relations where he takes on hundreds of concubines and wives. And so the Song of Solomon, for example, is written during the time of Solomon's good rule, his good kingship, and his monogamy. And when we look at the book of Proverbs, the book of Proverbs seems to also largely be written in that early period. The book of Ecclesiastes is after his wanderings into wickedness. And it deals with the despair that he felt in chasing after false gods, false goods. And then he has his old age repentance where he turns back and sums up what he has learned that he knew at the beginning, abandoned in the pursuit of wickedness, and came back. And so the book of Ecclesiastes is written in his old age. So this here is the instruction that set him up well for the beginning of his life. And so, men, page 3.5, a good wife who is a dominion woman is worth more than rubies. That's what the text says. Who can find a virtuous wife, a wife of valor? Her worth is far above rubies. So a good wife who is a dominion woman is worth more than rubies. If you find a good wife, you find a good thing. Search for her like a search for treasure. She will be more valuable than treasure. Disregard harlots. Get married to a quality woman as soon as possible. Save yourself in chaste purity for her. If you are trapped in wicked relationships or lusts, then get free of them and be clean and find a woman who is worthy of your care and attention. Do not give your strength to women. If you are in a marriage with a woman who is not like the Proverbs 31 woman, then be the man and lead. Wash her in the word as a prophet priest and lead her like a king pray for god to transform her finding this type of woman 
or leading a woman to be like this is a great achievement of life. It is the best thing apart from your salvation that will happen to you before you die. Women, seek to be like this kind of woman. And if you have a man who is not worthy of being this kind of woman for, then seek to win him without the word by prayer as a priestess and by queenly action to do him good. As a prophetess, look to speak to him in honoring ways and to present little bits of truth as opportunity arises. If he values your service and honor, then point the glory to Christ. Right? There's something that your husband praises you for. Deflect the glory to God. One of the things that I am most amazed by when I look at letters from Christian generals, for example, this guy's not popular in our era. He's had lots of statues that were recently torn down. But Robert E. Lee was a very consistent Calvinist. One of the things, and just so you're aware, he freed any slaves that he had direct property rights over at the beginning of the war so as to make it clear that he wasn't fighting the war for slaves. That doesn't mean not everybody in the Confederacy had that view, but the point is Robert E. Lee did not want to fight a war to keep slaves. That was not his concern. So, he would write after he had victories, and he would talk about how his men did well and God providentially favored them. He was offered kingship in the Confederacy. I'm not sure if you're aware of that. He refused it, just like George Washington did in the founding of the Union. Now, the deflecting of honor after a great victory to God is an act of humility. When there are praises for talents, accomplishments, anything else that you do, I would encourage you to think about how can you honor the Lord in that. To thank for the honor and to praise God in it. And so that idea of deflecting the honor to God, that is one of the ways that a woman without nagging can honor her husband and honor the Lord and point a husband to a greater consistency in the Lord. Okay, so that's one thing I'd want to encourage. Now, who can find a virtuous wife for her worth is far above rubies? Right, the first point here in the acrostic is the word eshet or isha starts with aleph, which is the first word in the the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet. So the point is the woman is the emphasis of the first line, and the idea is what do we learn about the woman, the woman of valor? She is more valuable than rubies. So that's the first principle. We get to Bet. We looked at this last time. The heart of her husband safely trusts in her. So he will have no lack of gain. And we didn't get very far. But yeah, we, we got through this one. But we didn't get to Gimel. So Gimel, there's a lot there. So Bet, the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The heart of her husband safely trusts in her. The first word in the line in the Hebrew is trust. So the idea of trust or being trustworthy is the emphasis. He safely trusts in her. And as a result, because he trusts in her, he will not lack spoils of war. We talked about that last time. I've cut out the quote that I had here before because it takes up about a page with all the, the quote and the discussion about it. But you remember here, there are only two things besides God that are ever referenced as things that it was lawful for the people of Israel to put their trust in. There's the reference to 
the Israelites trusting their other brothers who would come in for the flanking maneuver in the book of Judges. They trusted in them, and that was commended. And then there's this, the trusting in the covenant wife. So covenant brothers and a covenant sister wife. These are the places where a man can lawfully place his trust besides in the God of the Bible. Now, I encouraged you last time, husbands, trust your wives by giving them a zone of authority. Give a budget. Encourage them to take leftovers to make money with. Increase the resources that they manage as they generate more value. This is the, what's exemplified. This is sort of a header here. And it goes into, here's all this stuff the woman does. Okay? If she doesn't have resources, her dominion is not going to increase. I understand that you need to gather resources and that you need to manage resources yourselves. But what you want to do is encourage her to be able to give talents to managing some resources. And as you have her do that, you will find that if she is not carefree and absent-minded, but instead is trustworthy and wise as a steward, that you will more and more desire to give her resources. And so women, I encourage you to be careful, to be good stewards, to make sure that you build trust for your husband. Study the management of people, property, and money. Learn basic bookkeeping and be able to show what you're doing. Now, saving money, finding little pieces to be able to put them into useful things is how you get those spoils of war, that spiritual warfare, that work of dominion that the woman is doing helps to add spoils of war to the house. And so I encourage you, especially when you are young, the little steps as you build up bit by bit, they allow you to be catapulted forward. So early on, small gains allow for gigantic leaps in prime and in old age. So Gimel, she does him good and not evil all the days of her life. So that word, that letter Gimel is the first letter and a word for to do or show or complete. So she does him good. The, the doing of good to him and not evil all the days of her life. The, the doing of good to him. That's the emphasis. So look at point 11, page 4.11. She knows how to love her husband. And she does him good because she knows what his good is. She knows how to avoid harm or evil. The word tov is for good and and raw for evil. It's the most common way of referring to evil or sin or particular types of sin in Hebrew is that word raw. So she does good and not evil. She knows the difference. She has knowledge that matters for him. And she shows it by applying it. She wants the good of her husband, and he sees it. Right, so that's how you build trust. That's how you build trust, wives. That's how you build trust, daughters. Is You get the man who is the patriarch of your home to trust you with more and more resources and authority by doing him good, and by managing those things well, and by using your time well. She displays trustworthiness by doing what's good. When you trust a person, that means that you think they know something that's true. You think that they will tell you that truth. You trust them to tell you the truth. Or you might trust them to seek your good. Right? You trust them in the sense that you 
you think they're going to do good to you or you think they're going to do what they've said or you think they're telling you the truth or you think they're an authority. Right? Those are the, the kind of ways that you might trust somebody. Like somebody could be an authority and you trust that they have competence but you might think that they hate you and want to use that competence to destroy you. You would trust them to intelligently seek your destruction. Now, you might have somebody else who really wants to do what's good for you and is totally incompetent, and you might not trust what they're doing is going to be for your good, though you trust their intentions. And so these are different elements of that. So, so being trustworthy tends to kind of wrap those things up. You're going to put those together. The trusting is just a, an act of the mind where you, you think something, right? You think something is true about the object, so, the ways that you can build trustworthiness and showing that you actually desire the good of your husband, wives, when you don't know something or when you don't know how to say something in such a way that makes your patriarch feel as though you understand what he's trying to communicate, don't be unhappy when he explains it again. They encourage the head of house to communicate what he wants to teach, what he wants to set as a standard. Page 5.15. Here are things about this wife, this woman of valor, that make it so that she does him good and not evil. She is not a life-stealing shrew. Now, it's funny because we live in a time where there's a higher proportion of shrews in our society than like any other point in Western civilization. And we all kind of laugh at the idea of shrewness as though it's some sort of like, you know, chauvinistic thing or whatever. Shrews are women that are very difficult to lead, that are uncorrectable, that are difficult, that are pain-causing, right? The idea of a rebellious woman. We have a society filled with shrews. Now, rebellion and rejection of lawful authority, that is a way of harming husbands and fathers. 16. She is not a fool who hates to learn, who does not know the difference between good and evil. Right? This is not a woman who is rejecting correction, rejecting instruction and teaching. Husbands are called to wash their wives in the word. They're called to teach their, their children. So whether it's a daughter or whether it's a wife, that's, that's there. She's not a woman with a martyr complex who helps him and harms herself in the process. Right? Think about this. If you have a friend who every time they try to help you, they make it clear that it's very harmful or destructive to them, are you going to keep asking them to help you? Is that going to create an aversion to you asking them for help? Are you going to go, wow, this was harmful to you. I don't want to do this to you. I don't want to take from you. And so if it is the case that helping is always at a self-destructive cost, that is going to make it so that your husbands do not want to lean on you. They do not want to give you duties, responsibilities, resources. And that's the disorder of things. If the woman is consistently self-sacrificially giving to the husband in a way where it hurts her more, look at Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives 
just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. The sacrificing of self is to be more by the husband for the wife than the wife for the husband. So there's a protective need. So doing good for the husband is not a martyr complex. It is not a taking harm all the time. It is learning how to do good in a way that is good for you. Now, when we think about this, let's look at the Ephesians text, because the Ephesians text helps us to understand how this works to avoid the martyr situation, right? I have a summation for you down page, uh, page 5, 0.17b. Right? Husbands, you're called to teach your wife. And if you're going to teach, you have to study, right? So private worship is necessary if you're going to do household worship. You're supposed to protect and provide. You're supposed to invest in your wife. Teaching your wife, spending time with your wife, helping her to do work and to develop her, is an investment. It costs. And the result is that it has a benefit that bears fruit. Now women, children are an investment. It costs. And if you put the effort in, it bears fruit. And so, husbands, as you invest in giving to your wife, as you teach her, as you spend time, as you protect and provide, the idea is that that should result in not only the fruit of what she is doing, but that should pour over into the children and result in fruitfulness from them. Husbands, praise your wives for their beauty of form, how they carry themselves. Proverbs 31 describes that honorable carriage. And for their beauty of appearance. If you want to know how to do that well, go read Song of Solomon. Look at what the man says to the woman. There's a process there of more discreet to less discreet. Right? He starts out. The lists typically start out very prim. And then they become proper only for private. So that is the process that you see there in terms of the commending of the beauty of the wife in appearance. There's also a praising for her submissive service, which occurs in Proverbs 31. So you have that kind of example. Praise should be given by husbands to their wives for good things. Wives, you're called to submit. You're called to listen. You're called to gratefully accept and acknowledge protection. It's very difficult to protect someone who does not want to be protected. A grateful acceptance and acknowledgement of protection. A grateful acceptance and acknowledgement of provision. One of the things that's happened in our culture is, generally speaking, the job of the man is mocked and get expected. It's mocked and expected. If the man does his job and he does it well, you know, what do you expect? That's the bare minimum. Right? That's, that's the way it is talked about. So there's nothing to praise there. If you said the same thing about women, what do you expect? That's the bare minimum. Prepare for a comment storm or hate mail or phone calls until the phone lines go down. Right? This is the, this is the type of response. There is a mocking of the role of the man. The man is to provide and to protect. He is to teach and to lead. All of those things have been mocked. We all know that. 
We encourage each other here. And we have to get over being ashamed of patriarchy. We have to get over being ashamed of the law order of the household. It is beautiful. It is a thing to exult in. We should glory in it as the wisdom of God, and we should laugh at the stupidity of other orders. Feminism is insanity, and hyperpatriarchy is a way of making a life where everyone wants to die. The law order of Christian patriarchy is beautiful and glorious. It is a place where there are holy relationships. It is a place where people can be personalities interacting with other persons. The other two orders are destructive of personality and personhood with ingratitude, manipulation and power and emotion. The feminist system uses guilt manipulation and the course of power of a centralized state. Feminism works very well when there is birth control and the welfare state and men still show up to work to pay taxes and do the grunt work. Hyperpatriarchy follows. The history of the world is largely the history of hyperpatriarchy with the occasional rising up of Christian order to prevent the abuse of women and children. It took a long time in the Roman Empire to stop the sexualization of children and the abuse of women. It took a long time. That created, that formation was Western civilization, the Protestant world. It is not normally the case that children are protected in, innocent, in, in, in innocence and it is not normally the case that women are safe and protected and have rights that are carefully preserved in a station in the home that is not totally at the will of the man. These are abnormalities in history. They are normal in the sense that the law order gives them, but these are glories of Christian patriarchy. So, we have this to glory in. The law order of God is beautiful. So if you want to gratefully accept and acknowledge protection and gratefully accept and acknowledge provision, that will support the proper ordering of the home. And men are so used to not being thanked for doing their job that they will find an attitude of gratitude to be delightful. And they will pour out love and appreciation and protection and provision and teaching. We have made it so that we don't even know how to speak honorably. We don't know how to ask for things in an honoring way. But the scriptures are filled with such examples. And these things we blush at. When Sarah calls her husband Lord, we blush at it. But she's commended for it. When Ruth honors Naomi, it feels totally normal. But when she honors Boaz, we all feel weird. Why? Study how Ruth spoke to Naomi and Boaz. If you want to see honoring speech. Dissect it. Analyze it. Abigail talking to David 
Abigail was made was married to a man literally named Fool. Right, Nabal. Remember the story? David has an army. He's protecting Nabal's property. And he asks for some food. And his the shepherds, the men that are dealing with the property, Nabal say, you know, we actually were more profitable because of what they did. And so David asks for some help. Nabal turns him down. David's so angry he's going to go murder the guy. He swears a vain oath and says, if I don't kill this guy before the night's up, let this fall on me. Or he has a self-maledictory oath, which he doesn't keep and the curse doesn't fall on him, which is an example for us of don't keep evil oaths. Okay? Abigail intercepts him with food and speaks to him with honoring words. That speech is a master class in honorable speech. Study it. Analyze it. Dissect it. Esther, talking to her husband before Purim. Her discussion is an example of the discreet pursuit of an objective and the effort to seek to honor and the process seems so delightful to her husband that he seems to kind of rather than pressing and demanding that she immediately reveal what it is that she's trying to get he just sort of goes along with the subsequent requests of okay yeah I'll show up to the next party let's do this These things seem silly to us. But they worked. These things seem silly to us, but they're approved of God. These things seem silly to us, but what do we have to replace them? What, what, what honoring speeches do we know of? What are the forms that we have been taught? How have we been catechized? Is it perhaps the case that our tastes for honor are disordered? Have we become accustomed to junk food, perhaps? And that we don't even know what it is to glory in the enjoyment of well-made organic fruits? Are these things that have been lost to us? This woman, the woman of valor, is a priestess who helps and brings blessing and peace upon herself and the helping of her husband. She prays for her husband in seeking his good from the throne of heaven by the mediation of the Messiah. Prayer. 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 Praying for good authorities. You have a good magistrate? Pray for that man. You have a good pastor? Pray for that man. You have a good husband, a father? Pray for that man. Calling down good on the head of the head of house. Now, one of the things is our tastes are disordered, and this is hard. This is rough. It's difficult to get these things. And so there's a training program 
And the training program is not for Timothys to teach Tinas. Right? The training program is for older women to teach younger women. So older women, those who have learned what the church has attained to, need to teach younger women or newer women how to love their husbands, how to love their children, and how to be priestly, to, do, to seek the good of the husband and not harm him as his queen. Titus 2, verses 1 through 5. This is a totally serious question. Older women, ask yourselves, have you memorized what you are supposed to teach to younger women? If you haven't memorized the short list here, how well do you think you're going to do at teaching them on the spot? If I'm going to teach somebody about the reform religion, i got stuff I've memorized. I've memorized the solas, I've memorized tulip, I have memorization of an outline for the Trinity. I've memorized the Incarnation. Memorized the Ten Commandments. I've memorized the Lord's Prayer. I know the difference between baptism and the Lord's Supper. And I can talk to you about the preaching of the Word. If you want to know something about the basic Reformed faith, I can give it to you from memory. If I'm called to teach something, you better believe I'm going to memorize an outline. If you're called to teach something, God help you if you haven't memorized an outline. You're not going to teach it very well. Memorize the outline. The Lord God Almighty gave you an outline, older women. And here's the outline. First, how you're supposed to behave. You're supposed to be priestly in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. Doctors of beauty, as I've translated it before. And then, here's what you're supposed to soberize or prudentize the younger women with. How to love their husbands, how to love their children, how to be discreet or prudent, how to be chaste or holy, how to be homemakers, good, and obedient to their own men, their own husbands. Seven things. Seven things. It's about solas and a half. So memorizing that and having a lot to say about each of them. Those are heads of doctrine to talk about. This is how you know how to do good to your husband. This is how you know how to do good to your father's daughters. Is doing these things. These are the things that you look for, men. You want to marry a woman? Do they know how to love a husband? They know what your good is? They know how to love children? They know what the good of children is? You want to see your, your wife raised up in these things. So, the idea of a woman who seeks the good of her man, she does him good and not evil. So, I've got here on page six. The idea of being priestly, reverent, behaving in a manner that would be fitting to a priest. A proper reverencing in behavior. Not slanderers. Point 21. Not a gossip, not a false accuser. Not a slave to wine. The Greek word for wine is fun. It's oino. 
fun, right? Don't be an oino. All right, so this idea of not being a slave to oino, teachers of good things, the doctor of beauty, the callow, good or beautiful, the fitting, and didaskalus. The word didactic comes from that. The didaskalus, the didactic one, the teacher. Teachers of beauty, doctors of beauty. And they are to teach this, how to love husbands, how to be a lover of their husbands. So here's some things to ask as you consider the love of the husband. Do you value biblical manhood? What is the purpose of a husband? A husband is to glorify God. He's to exercise dominion. He's supposed to spread the knowledge of God in the earth. He's supposed to apply the law over what he rules. Do you know how to seek the good of your husband? What is the good of the husband? You seek the good of your husband, wives, by being a helper to him in that work of glorifying God. Are you supporting him, advancing him, encouraging him in doing what's good? Are you helping to take burdens to make it so he can do higher work? The Proverbs 31 process is the woman managing more and more of the household and the estate to make it so that the man is free to do more and more public work at the gates. This is not the Victorian woman. We we need to not make the error of thinking that the Victorian era is the exemplar era of womanhood. The Victorian woman was not a strong woman. The Victorian woman was not encouraged to exercise dominion over her zone. It was thought that it was unwomanly to trade, that it was unwomanly to do things that were a commercial activity. That is not the case. The Proverbs 31 woman is not a Victorian woman. She does not need smelling salts close at hands. She is not faint at heart. She laughs at the future. She is a dominion woman. The woman of valor is a dominion woman. So the love of the husband involves working with the husband to accomplish the work of the husband. It's a supporting in that. He's firing a rifle, you're loading magazines and handing them over. You got two rifles, great. You're both shooting, right? Make the kids load. So they're four. So the love of the husband is helping him in his work. Now, helping the husband in his work, that's difficult to figure out. It's difficult to figure out how to work as a team. It's, it, there's all sorts of like, what do we do here? What's the, what's the process? Like, are we going to do the same thing at the same time? Or oh, we ran out of those back there. Let's both run back there. Now we're doing this. We don't have enough space for it. Right? So you, you figure things out. You, you, you go through the process of thinking about assembly lines. You think about how do you make steps work together? How do you, what are your strengths and weaknesses? What can you do to effectively work together, realizing that the Lord has given you to each other, that you might have the division of labor? little division of labor team. You figure out things you're both better at, you both enjoy more, so splitting up work. And you figure out who's the point of constraint. Who's the one who's not getting the stuff done enough? The other person's done with their stuff, going, why aren't you ready for dinner? Right? You're either waiting for the dinner to cook, or you're waiting to eat the dinner, or 
you are waiting for the other person and the dinner's getting cold. Which one has the problem? Does that one seem like the one that's overloaded? Is there a way to help? Can you, can you distribute out the work to be more effective? Is there other resources to figure it out? You have kids? Give them work to do. Figure, them, figure out how to help them to do chores, to take over more responsibility. The love of the husband involves helping to increase dominion and to make it so there's more fruitful work. Study the laws of Scripture and the examples in Scripture. Meditate upon them and seek to memorize and apply the laws and examples. Proverbs 31 is a bullet point list of stuff to meditate on, women, for you to think about what to do. You don't know what to do? Proverbs 31 has ideas for you. You're bored? Well, have I got the two-thirds of a chapter for you? Proverbs 31 there's plenty for you to think about, to look for stuff to do. And we have all the examples I mentioned before. Sarah, Ruth, Abigail, Esther. Put them up on the wall, analyze them, think about them, meditate, memorize. Go study the negative examples of the harlot, the adulterer, the nag, the shame bringer, Jezebel. Think on those things and how to avoid those pitfalls. Those are things worth meditating on. You love your husband by not being those things. You love your husband by being the things that are approved and helping him with his work. Proverbs 31 teaches us about the love of the husband. It is a focus on it. And it's saying, Solomon, get a woman who's going to be a husband lover. Figure out how to get a woman who's going to work with you in dominion. A woman of valor. The love of children, you could ask the same questions. And I just encourage you again, training children is an investment. Training children is an investment. It results in more being able to be done. There's a call to be discreet, to be wise or prudent. To be prudent or wise, page 7, means that you know what the good is and you know how to get what's good. Right? Remember what wisdom is. This is, this is a memorization thing. Like, I repeat this all the time. And I like say it real fast because I'm like trying to make sure it's the, the memorized thing. So red flag, highlight, underline, bold, italicize, definition of wisdom. Wisdom is the knowledge of what is good and the means to get what is good. Right? That needs to be clearly in your mind. And if you don't know what the good is, you go, what's that? It's a phrase that's meant to draw your attention to thinking about What's the highest thing? What's the best thing? What's the thing worth trading to get and never worth trading out for anything else? That's God. It's knowledge of God. That's the highest thing. Now, chaste. The word there is really the word for holy. Women are called to be holy. Holiness. Remember what's this? Holiness is being on board with the right goal and the right team. Be on board with the right goal and the right team. If you're holy unto God, you're focused on the goal of the glory of God. And if you're holy unto God, you're in relationship with Him, and you're in relationship with the people that have been set apart to God. Holy things are set apart. They're focused on a particular purpose, and they have a place they fit. Holiness is about the right goal and the right team. What are you trying to do? What are you focused on? And who are your people? What's your team? 
Where are your affections? Who do you long to be with? My holy affections are focused on the glory of God, and they are focused on God's people. And in particular, women, your call of holiness is to be holy unto your household in a special way. You're very concerned about the loyalty to your household. Now, that's followed immediately with oikurus, which is a jamming together of the word household and work. So workers at home, homemakers, keepers at home. Women are called to focus their work on building up their household. This is loyalty manifest in looking to give time to building up the household. The household being well-ordered allows it to be a base of work for the patriarch and a place for ministry to the church in hospitality and in employment of Christians in a Christian place. So the building up of the household does. Women, when you help to build up your household, you're helping to make that. You're making that sphere. That's what you're doing. There's a call to be good. We talked about the definition of goodness. God is the good. You know how to glorify God, what to do. That's the call of Titus 2. And obedience to their own husbands. The word for obedience there could easily be planted into anything where it says, Lieutenants, obey your captains. Right? Be subordinate to your captains. It's about rank. That's what it's about. It's about the law order rank. So that word is about. Be obedient to their own husbands. Are women called to be obedient to all the men in the church? No. Are they called to be generally obedient to men? No. They're called to be obedient to their one man. That's it. Their loyalty to their household. They don't have a general jurisdictional responsibility to men. Men are not superior to women on the basis of being men. Men who are husbands or fathers have a place of authority over a particular woman. And this is a glorious thing. It makes women protected and have a base of operation and a loyal covenant protector. She does her man good and not evil all the days of her life. Verse 13. She seeks wool and flax and willingly works with her hands. We hear she seeks wool and flax and we think she goes down to the general store and she buys wool and flax and then she just starts knitting. This is this is how you, you think about this, okay? The word seek there, I'm going to spend an inordinate amount of time talking about that word for a minute. This word starts with a D, Deleth. The word is Darsha. It means to be curious about something, to be inquiring about it, to be investigative about the subject. To research it. The idea of seeking out diligently wool and flax. This is like obsession level 
wool and flax shopping. This wool is the best because these sheep are from this valley. And this valley has remarkably fertile ground because the sheep have been eating a lot and then they went there. And so the grass was very good. And this wool is going to be undervalued per pound because it will have a greater insulation capability than other wool. That kind of thing. What is the thing about the wool that makes it so that if you buy it, you will have a value proposition that is superior to the other wool on the market? This is research and development work. This is value proposition work. This is the woman is looking for diligently information that will make it so that she can buy wool and flax and have a market advantage, a competitive advantage. She does not gain her market advantages by being dishonest. She does not clip the coins so that when she buys, she's using less silver to get more wool. She does not engage in fraud. She uses deep insight in order to negotiate so that she can buy things where she can generate more value. She comes up with the plan. She has a plan. She has done the R&D on the wool and the flax. Then she acquires the wool and the flax, and she willingly works with her hands. The, the Hebrew is more, she works with her glad palms. It, what, what's palms about? When something's in your palms, it's not at the edge of your hand. This isn't just like, oh, all right, I guess I have to touch this thing. It's, it's like you've grabbed this thing, and it's like in the center of your hands, right? You have grasped it with your hands. It's in your palms. And she is eager to do the work. She's researched it, and when it finally came, she had enough box tops that she was able to get the sample of the wool and flax. And so it gets there, and she eagerly takes it to work. This is the picture. When you study things, they become more interesting. Almost anything that you have deep knowledge about is interesting. The world is full of interesting things, even wool and flax. And so whatever the thing is, if you study it and gain deep insight... You will find it interesting, and you will then be able to work with it in a way that is more interesting than otherwise. Now, this working with the glad palms involves starting small. This is her own hands, and it's a small amount of material. Right? This is her own hands, and she's dealing with wool and flax. She didn't buy a ship and refurbish it. This wasn't her first thing. This wasn't about a condominium renovation where she bought an apartment building and then sold it off into condominium pieces or whatever. This is, she bought wool and flax and she started to do something. Starting small is important. It will not seem like it's worth the time to begin with. The initial work is low value, but as you get time in, as you get insight as you find opportunities and exploit them, there is a growing, growing, growing. Or if you fail, you realize, I learned something here, I need to do something else. Failing, when you try hard, is very valuable. Failing because you started and didn't try very hard, not very valuable. 
the lesson to learn is try hard. When you've tried hard and you failed, there's lots of other lessons. Trying hard either will result in success over time or result in learning that will allow you to go do something else. When you start out, it's basically a hobby. You're not going to make much profit. But you find things to learn about and have opportunities to do work where you are, filling excess time. Now, a lot of people who mock the initial efforts to save money or to invest or to do work or to open businesses from home, they're kind of like, this is so little money. But here's the deal. It has a huge psychological impact. If you try to lose weight by just not eating, it's very different from trying to lose weight while exercising and also eating less than would be desirable in the ideal scenario. Now, when you work out, you don't burn enough calories to feel like it's really worth it. But you know what it does do? It makes you think real hard about everything you put into your mouth. You know what? I'm not real sure that I want to eat this thing because it took me like three days to work it off. And so there's an impact there to thinking about it, to doing the work. If you work hard to make a little bit of money, it makes you think very carefully about spending money. If you work hard to save money, it makes you think carefully about spending money. And so this idea that there's a psychological impact, being a producer changes the way you see the world. I want you to think about anything you've learned about. Have you ever studied graphic design or music or have you studied clothing or real estate or construction or landscaping? Or is there anything else that you might have studied? And now when you go buy that thing, you can't help but interpret it in detail. You see the world and you label those things. Other people see those things and they just pass by as a blur. When you understand something deeply, it is now a thing with tons of labels in your mind. And so as you work, you get more insight. You learn about one thing. It helps you to learn about other stuff. And as you think about the ability to deploy effort to make money, it helps you to more carefully consider the expenditure of money and how to deploy money. The general tendency of point 35 of women is to want to know about the man more than they want to know about the mission of the man. There's a temptation to R&D the man. Maybe we could redesign this thing. Rather than to try to rule and manage with the man, there's a desire to rule and manage the man. Women, you were designed to help the man with the mission. You were designed to help the man with the mission. And so if that's the case, let's think about this. Genesis 3.16 says that trying to manage the man is a cursed condition. It says, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. So here's strife with the children. Your desire shall be against your husband or toward your husband, and he shall rule over you. As you seek to rule over your man, it hardens him, embitters him, and makes patriarchy into hyperpatriarchy. That is what it does. It generates hyperpatriarchy, a depersonalized, authoritarian, angry response. That is the effect. This results in a failure on the part of both 
The man resents and is tempted to be bitter toward the woman. The woman fails to be able to subject the man. The man's rule takes the form of hyperpatriarchy and objectification by depersonalized subjection. Colossians 3.19 warns husbands to not let that happen. It says, husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. That bitterness is specifically warned against. That bitterness is specifically warned against. Genesis 4, 19-24 gives us the example of the rise of hyperpatriarchy with Lamech. He engages in polygamy, and then he tries to bring the rule of the state into his own house, and he gives warnings about men and women. And so his little song, his little poem, whatever it is, he gives that little song, and it's an anthem of hyperpatriarchy. Respect for authority and for rights in Christian law allows for beautiful submission and service, service by those in authority. Point 36, the woman of valor cares about the work and about working to help the man rather than just working to control or manage the man. She researches the best wool and flax to buy. She does market research. She helps him increase and exercise dominion. And I gave to you, here's, here's a little prayer I would encourage you to pray for your patriarch. It's the prayer of Jabez which is widely mocked, but is an awesome prayer. It's awesome. Here's the prayer of Jabez. Now Jabez was more honorable than his brothers, and his mother called his name Jabez, which means he will cause pain. He's he's called, he would cause pain. His mother apparently had some bad time with Jabez's brothers. She's predicting, based upon her past experience, this one's going to cause pain, just like all of them. So this is Jabez's prayer. He says, Because I bore him... Sorry, this is what the mom said. Because I bore him in pain. Verse 10. And Jabez called on the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that you would bless me indeed, and enlarge my territory, that your hand would be with me, and that you would keep me from evil, that I may not cause pain. So God granted him what he requested. It's a good prayer. Doesn't want to do evil to cause pain, contrary to what his mother predicted. And he wants to increase dominion, which is a commandment of God. And God answered those prayers. He does good and he increases his dominion. His border increases. Pray that. Pray that for your household. Pray that for your man. May he know how to do good and avoid causing harm. May his border increase. Verse 14. She is like the merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. Now, she is, is the word here that starts out the verse. That's the Hebrew starter. So she is. And so this points us to the, she's like. So she's become like a ship of a merchant. Okay, merchant ships brought huge profits back at this time. Okay? Just to give you a sense of this, transportation used to be an enormous expense. It was very difficult to take anything to any markets that were far away. The only markets that were reachable were those markets that you could get to in time to be able to sell and make it so that the wages of transportation didn't consume all that profit. And this wasn't a truck driver you know, like having a semi. This was a guy with a cart or maybe you have some, <coughs> some oxen 
or donkeys or something. Transportation is very expensive. I mean, you have like one horsepower, maybe two. So these expensive transportation acts were only mitigated by water. Transportation on water historically has been dramatically cheaper, which is one of the reasons why when God created the Garden of Eden before the curse, there were four rivers going out of it. It created highways of transportation that were very cheap away from the Garden of Eden for dominion. So the Mediterranean is the place where you've got all sorts of cities being built because of the fact that it created an interconnected network of trade that was so much easier than going further inland. So the network that exists, you go around the Mediterranean and the Black Sea, and you go down and you look at North Africa, right? That whole zone is a big interconnected cultural sphere. And so that interconnected space where there's an ability to trade allowed for the movement of people and goods on ships that was much cheaper than movement to other places. She is like the merchant ships. She figures out how to do immensely profitable trade. Are you noticing that there seems to be a lot of emphasis on economic productivity here? I'm just figuring this out. So the emphasis on economic productivity, that's what dominion principally is. That's the work to develop economic tools, and you apply the word of God to it. She's like the merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. So she's like a ship of a merchant, which brings in huge profits. Verse 39, she learns to find good deals in buying and selling. With ships, here's your goal. Here's the, here's the ideal if you own a merchant ship. You want to be in a city that has a lot of something, so it's cheap. And you want to find another city that doesn't have very much of that thing, so it's expensive. And ideally, you would then find something in that city, city two, that has, there's a lot of it there, and in city one, not very much. And so your goal would be to take the stuff that there's a lot of from city one, take it to city two, sell it in city two for a huge profit, buy the stuff that there's a lot of in city two, and bring it back to city one, and sell it for a lot. Now, you can imagine if somebody sees you doing this, and they realize you're making a lot of money, because you don't just have two horses, you have like six. Six horsepower on your cart. They look at that and they go, what are you doing? No, I'm just selling stuff. Where are you going? <laughs> Find out where you're going. They see your entire ship is filled with this stuff and you're coming back with something else, and you're selling it, it's a pretty public thing, you see how that would very quickly attract competition. So those very easy two-stop things start to disappear really quick because there's competition for it. And that serves everybody. Okay, trade creates value for all the people involved. But the woman is looking for good deals and looking for good deals to buy and looking for good deals to sell is something that... Women, if they're engaged in the process of dealing with the money that is brought into the house and they are involved with the control of the consumption, which is the case, right? Overwhelmingly, consumable spending is done by women because they typically control the budget for the house. You're looking for deals there 
And if you find something and you can sell it, you're looking for that deal. And if women engage in more social activity than men generally do, you see how finding opportunities to sell might be something that, that women are more capable of doing in the general course of things, which is why multi-level marketing people always want to go after stay-at-home moms because they want to use their networks to do that. You don't need a multi-level marketing thing. You just need to look for deals. You need to look for useful things. You need to look for demand. As you talk to people, where's a need that is expensive or difficult? Do you have a solution to it where you can resolve that problem for other people and make money that's worth making? You're looking like a merchant for opportunity and you're trying to bring home food. The woman learns to find good deals like a ship owner in buying and selling. She is thinking about macro trends. Right? Merchant ships in ancient times had to buy a lot of stuff and move a lot of stuff and it took a while. Trade trips were not super fast. They were not diesel powered. They were wind powered or occasionally ore powered. She takes inconveniences and pains to get deals. This is not stupidity. This is profitably taking inconvenience for significant benefit. If you want to understand and think about economics more, I have two great resources for you. John Robbins on the Trinity Foundation has some excellent but dense lectures about economics. They are magnificent. He will show you from the scriptures all sorts of economic principles. If you want something more digestible as an introduction, and it's frankly highly entertaining, and my, I watch it over and over again, and my kids watch it over and over again, Economics for Everybody by R.C. Sproul Jr. These are both great at teaching economic principles from the Bible, and I would strongly encourage you to engage with those materials. The Proverbs 31 woman, she invests in things to sell for profit and then brings home provision for the house out of that gain. An, an example I have from my own wife's work, I remember um, my wife picking up furniture on Craigslist, buying things for our own consumption in cheap places, looking for things, looking for opportunities, you know, coupons, all that kind of stuff. There's a point in time in which it doesn't become possibly worth your time anymore, but early on, it definitely is. The less you make, the more it's worth spending time to save money and to make things happen. And so the idea of going to Walmart, looking for deals, that kind of stuff. Now, selling things for gain involves improving or simply reselling things like furniture. My wife found furniture to be a thing that was big enough in terms of it was inconvenient for some people. So rich people wanted to get rid of it. And there were deals on it, and you could get it cheaply enough. You could sell it to people who were not as wealthy. And so you could get it from a good place cheaply and move it, and basically somebody would get it for free by moving it, and then offer to resell it and have somebody pick it up from your house. So that kind of thing. There were those kinds of choices to look for opportunities. You're looking for something that you can get value out of to make it so that you can find deals and accomplish things. The man is called to do this work. Consider Proverbs 27. And the woman is called to do this as well. So Proverbs 27, Be diligent to know the state of your flocks and attend to your herds, for riches are not forever, nor does a crown endure to all generations. 
when the hay is removed and the tender grass shows itself and the herbs of the mountains are gathered in. The lambs will provide for your clothing and the goats the price of a field. You shall have enough goat's milk for your food, for the food of your household and the nourishment of your maidservants. We walked through that in detail and talked about how a man who is even engaged in public service needs to continue to care about his estate. And we talked about the details of this, Chuck, the text. The man is doing this, and the woman is working alongside, being like the merchant ships. Now, I'm going to pause here. We'll pick up at Vav next time. But this is overwhelmingly the focus of Proverbs 31. It is about doing business, and we, we don't think that there's a lot here. When you read Proverbs 31, you're just kind of like, this seems like it's telling me to work a lot. Right? But what I want to help you to understand is that there's more here than just that. It's saying, here's activities to think about. You go, I don't know what to do that's profitable. Deep market research. Think about what kind of wool and flax to get. Right? Knowing something in depth. It tells you to look for deals, like a guy who owns a merchant ship. These are, these are things it's pointing to. This is, not just, this is not just go try harder. This is here are the types of things to give your attention to. These are the economic activities that you can, if you put your mind on it, find value in. God is giving you a command, he's saying, go drill for oil. And you go, well, that sounds really hard. And he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. But here's where the wells would be. Right? This is, this is what you think about, and here's how you'll find oil. He is telling you how to find profitable activities. These are the things to put your mind to. And so this is entrepreneurial, and it's useful for men to consider. But it's also very specifically written about what the woman of valor does. So, comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights.